I started to feel the darkness come in when you feel like you might pass out. And the medic, the young medic who was working there, who'd been doing this for six months, looked up and looked me in the eye. He said, Doc, sit down, put your head between your knees and keep telling us what to do next. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Army Brigadier General Dr. Mary Kruger to WarDocs. Dr. Kruger is the Commanding General of the Army Atlantic Regional Health Command. She completed residency training in family medicine as well as a faculty development fellowship at Madigan Army Medical Center. She also received a Master's in Public Health from the University of Washington and a Master's in National Security from the Eisenhower School. Dr. Kruger is a seasoned clinician educator and has held many important strategic leadership positions in military medicine including Commander of Tripler Army Medical Center in Hawaii. She has deployed multiple times in support of the CENTCOM Arid Responsibility. You can read her full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. On this episode of Wardox, we're privileged to welcome Brigadier General Dr. Mary Kruger. Mary, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. General Kruger, tell us what led you to join the military and pursue a career in medicine. I wish I could tell you it was because I'm a fabulous patriot and I had this lifelong dream, but that wouldn't be the honest story. The honest story is that I uh, was in my senior year of college and I had an acceptance to med school in one hand and absolutely nothing else in the other hand. So as I look to how am I going to fund my uh, my med school experience, a friend of mine had uh, told me about HPSP and the Health Profession Scholarship Program. So I, I went to the AMED recruiter, and uh, although it was a little scary uh, at the first, because uh, frankly, when I first started, I, I couldn't do one push-up. And I uh, did not make the Army uh, weight standards. So it, it was a little bit of a, a barrier, but I looked at the benefits and the benefits were uh, world-class residency training, guaranteed employment after residency, full ride for med school, as well as getting paid during med school. I think I was one of the uh, the only folks in my med school class other than the other HPSP recipients that actually bought all of our books and had all of our medical equipment. Um, and then twice a year, somebody would remind me to uh, eat healthy and stay fit. So seemed like a good deal. And um, I signed into the Army Reserve in April of 92, uh, came on to active duty in uh, 95. And then my initial obligation, uh, because I actually applied during my first year of med school was three years. And uh, the thing is, that's interesting about it is I've never even gotten close to coming up on that time period where I was going to get out because each time it got there, the Army has offered me something else, whether it was a fellowship or the job was just so fun uh, that that I didn't even think of getting out. So at this point, I'm, I'm thinking of making a career of it. Well, that sounds good. You've made it pretty far so far. Um, you did a residency in family medicine, and we've talked to several family medicine docs, but you also obtained a master's degree in public health from the University of Washington School of Health. How does a public health degree benefit the military? That's a fantastic question. And, and I think my answer has changed from when I first started off and in, into where I am now. So when I joined the Army in 1995, that was before 9-11. And so my main interest in public health was how it 
it uh, related to educating patients. So, you know, the word doctor from Latin doesn't have anything to do with healthcare. It, it means teacher. And so for me, the public health degree um, gave me more information on how to educate communities and families. And as a family doctor, as well as an osteopathic physician, my approach to being a physician has always been that holistic approach. So it seemed like this public health, community health education route was right up my alley. However, during my first deployment to Afghanistan, this education yielded benefits that I could have never imagined. So Again, starting off my career at Madigan Army Medical Center, which I think is could be rightfully called one of the ivory towers, I could have never guessed that this education would, would bring such fruit in Afghanistan. So there we were in Afghanistan, and like many countries in Southwest Asia at the time, it had a lot of public health issues, you know, clean water. There were a number of children and, and women who had goiter because of iodine deficiency and, and lack of access to consistent health care. And the education from the University of Washington, this uh, university on the hill, if you would, provided the perfect background to assist with policy development. I had the chance during that deployment to be part of the policy development for Afghanistan's um, healthcare system that was coming to formation. Also planning and execution of healthcare seminars for medical personnel in Afghanistan as well as opening the door for the One Health concept. So we used to joke on uh, on the team I was on in Afghanistan that we physicians were actually the limited practitioners because we only took care of one species, whereas our veterinarians could take care of the camels and the chickens and all of those. But the public health piece allowed us to tie together how did the animal health tie to the human health tied to the stability in the country, which really gets to why we were there in the first place. So it totally took a path that I could have never guessed when I started the education. 2015, five years before the COVID pandemic, you obtained a master's degree in national security and resource strategy at the Eisenhower School of National Security. And your research topic was preventing the next pandemic, which I find very interesting. Tell us about what you learned and how this applied to the COVID pandemic. At the time, um, I had just come back from serving in Hawaii as the commander of a clinic, and I'd gotten very interested in the Pacific and how communicable diseases could present a, a threat in that theater. And it was also following the Ebola outbreak. And so my field of study had to do with the Ebola outbreak. And really, it was looking at how could we as a military, looking forward uh, in national defense strategy, put things in place that would help us react during the next pandemic. So I studied Ebola to see what had we done well and where were there areas that we could learn from. Well, one of the areas was it looked at the zoonotic diseases. So the fact that with Ebola, you had people living in close proximity between animals and humans. And so that had lent uh, to this Ebola outbreak um, becoming dangerous. And then we looked at uh, how was the response. And actually looking at that outbreak, the response was quite rapid. And the communication between the military and the civilian healthcare organizations was quite concerted. Although there's always room for improvement, but the coordination helped to keep that limited. And then the, the next thing that we studied was, well, what would it look like if Ebola, instead of being transmitted with a closer contact, was actually transmitted through droplets? And that would be uh, much more devastating as far as a pandemic and also would bring in all of the concerns of 
international travel and how with our global environment, a pandemic of that nature could be very quickly communicated. So I did that project as part of the Pacific Scholars Program. And so went to uh, the Philippines and, and met with some members of their military as, far, as well as the One Health Organization and uh, talked about how could we take lessons learned from that pandemic. And um, while, while I can't say that I know that that work positively contributed to response here. I do know that members um, at USERPAC had studied the results of that paper afterwards and looked at how we could apply lessons learned and try to limit spread of future pandemics. So you mentioned a little bit about being in Afghanistan, and you were there as a deputy surgeon for the Combined Joint Civil Military Task Force in Bagram. Tell us about that experience from a clinical standpoint. You know, were there any outstanding cases or things that, that come to your memory? Well, it's interesting. So that Boy, that that deployment was so formative for me. Again, remembering that I didn't have any military background prior to my scholarship. Nobody in my family that I knew of had been in the military. Although when my mom has heard me say that in different uh, settings, she reminded me that Uncle So and So was a cook or somewhere else. But but nobody I knew of. So so this was all new to me. So the deployment itself, um, I started off actually as a a profis provider. So somebody that was attached to an operational unit to the 48th Combat Support Hospital. And I had never met anybody from that hospital prior to meeting them in Afghanistan. In fact, I had been somebody who was replaced out um, about halfway into their deployment. So I, I trained up for that. I arrived there and, and getting there was a story in and of itself. So can you tell us a little bit more about the, the crazy journey from America to Afghanistan? So in, in very short order, it was I'd gotten an RFO. I was going with a 48th cash. They had been in, in theater for six months and somebody needed to rotate out. So I went to the CRC because I was an individual deployer. And, you know, you, you get qualified in your weapon and that sort of thing. And then I'm standing in formation waiting to get my plane ticket to go downrange. And they went through the whole formation and I was the last one left standing. And I said, uh, where do I go from here? And they said, well, you call your unit. And I had been calling my unit for three months, but they were all in Afghanistan. So nobody answered the phone. So they got me back to my home, which happened to be here in D.C., and I went to the, the airport, and I literally had my RFO in hand, and all I had done was highlighted it said Bagram, Afghanistan. And so, again, this was 2003, so there weren't all these systems. So they said, oh, yeah, there's a plane going. We'll get you to Germany. So I got to Germany, but then that was just when Iraq was kicking off. And they said, hey, it's going to be two months, two weeks, excuse me, two weeks before we can get you out of here. And I'm like, no, I'm supposed to be in Afghanistan. You know, I've got somewhere to go. So that night at dinner, I talked to some folks and they're like, I said, where are you going? They said, we're going to Kabul. And I looked on a map and Kabul and Bagram did that far apart. And I said, well, you got room for one more? And they're like, sure. So I grabbed my stuff and I got on this plane. It ended up being a special operations group. And so it was freezing cold. I learned a lot of things that day is basically that, you know, military transport planes are not like your commercial aircraft. So I think I had every piece of gear in my bag on by the end of the flight. They did a combat landing in the Kabul airfield. The back door dropped. These guys came on with bandolero ammunition. And again, remember, this is I'm a Madigan doctor this point. So they get on and they're like, OK, gentlemen, welcome back to the theater and look at me in the corner. And they're like, where are you from? I'm like, I'm going to Bagram. 
like, uh, okay, just get on the bus. And so we got on the van. We drive through, again, downtown Kabul. There's dead goats hanging, and my eyes must have been huge. And we get to the the compound, and they're like, where are you going? And I said, oh, the combat support hospital in Bagram. And they're like, oh, well, there's a convoy going. Do you have a long gun? I'm like, no, I don't have a long gun. So anyway, I said, but do you have room for just one more? And they said, sure. So convoy up to Bagram. And again, here we are going through the countryside in Afghanistan in 2003. And there's this long line. So I get to the hospital there at the 48th cash. And they're like, how in the world did you get here? We thought we weren't expecting you for another two weeks. And I'm like, I thought I was supposed to be here. So that was kind of how I got into theater. And then six months later, when I got changed over to civil affairs, they looked at my orders and they're like, you're not actually here. I am. They're like, nope, system says you're not here. So that took a little unscrewing. So it was the uh, price of being ingenuitive. But once I got there on the ground, it was really the first time I was able to put to use the trauma training that I had had. Again, I'm a family physician, so trauma is not my bread and butter back here. But the resuscitation and how could we receive patients back and, and resuscitate them and not only in their, their physical state, but also make sure we're caring for the, the whole person. And, and two stories that come to mind for me clinically, I had been on the ground there for about a month and I had been on an all-night ER shift. So I was coming into about the 12th hour. So I was pretty tired at that point and uh, probably about six in the morning. And we got notified that we were having a, a mass cal come in. So multiple injuries. And the first patient that came in that came to my um, bed was an Afghan and he had had surgery in the field, so resuscitative surgery, and they had stopped the bleeding, closed him back up, and he came to our combat support hospital. So when he came in, he was yelling. So there was noise. There were all sorts of um, smells that you can imagine from the jet fuel. There was the site. Uh, there was still quite a bit of bleeding. And, and really, this was my first trauma experience. And so as I started to walk through what I had been taught in uh, advanced trauma life support, the, the medics came around and they started doing their thing. And frankly, I could feel between the combination of the sounds, the smells, the sights, the being very tired, and all of in the situation, I started to feel the darkness come in when you feel like you might pass out. And the medic, the young medic who was working there, who'd been doing this for six months, looked up and looked me in the eye. He said, Doc, sit down, put your head between your knees and keep telling us what to do next. And sure enough, I took a couple breaths in that. The team was already doing, they were doing at that time, it was the airway, airway breathing circulation because this was, uh, gosh, 20 years ago now. And within about 30 seconds, the darkness started to go away. I took a few deep breaths. Somebody had thrown a cloth on the back of my neck. I stood back up and the team was still moving. And, and it never happened again. But that to me was such a testament to the skill of that young medic. He had to be maybe 21 at max but he was aware enough. His training was good enough. We had the procedure and we walked through and, and that patient actually did really well. So that, that humbling experience of being a part of the team 
and realizing where you should rely on other people's strengths and, and walking through. The, the second clinical experience, I think that was, I didn't realize how meaningful it would be until later on, was when a young soldier came in and, and unfortunately had stepped into a minefield. And so he came into us and he was stable, but he had suffered a, a very significant injury to both of his lower extremities. So pretty much below the knee on, on the left side um, was gone. And then he also had damage to the, the right leg. And, and he looked up at me and this was an American soldier and he was talking, he said, doc, tell me the truth. Am, you know, am I going to die? And I said, look, you know what? You are, uh, you know, you have some pretty significant injuries, but we are going to take care of you. And in fact, my tent mate happened to be an orthopedic surgeon. I said, we're just going to get you stabilized. We're going to get you to the operating room. The surgeon's going to take care of you and you're going to, you know what? You're, you're going to be okay. We'll get you there. And, and he had a few more questions, but just that look me in the eye, conversation, connection. And um, about 10 years after that, I was in clothing sales, getting something for my uniform. And somebody came up behind me and he said, Hey, I just want to thank you for saving my soldier's life. It, it had been his team sergeant and, uh, and it was, you know, impactful. Again, I did not save that soldier's life. It's the, the whole team did, but that placement of knowing that we had a positive impact on the people who were willing to be there out front, on the people that were walking the minefields, on the people that were conducting the mission, uh, incredibly humbling. From That was from the clinical standpoint, but that mission to Afghanistan, you mentioned the title of the Civil Military Task Force Surgeon. That's where so many of the lessons came in from that deployment. That mission really shaped my thoughts about what do we do in the military regarding our medical missions, because I think we've all seen or I had seen pictures of American soldiers taking care of kids and, and how rewarding that would be. But during that deployment, being with the civil affairs teams, I gained a better appreciation for where we could really make an impact. And that was in the sustainable partnership with the local medical providers who were fantastic, sometimes not well-resourced, but really fantastic at, at caring for people in very austere conditions. And it also gave me appreciation for what role medical really played as far as stability in nations. Because if, if a nation doesn't have the ability to educate its population, to feed its population, to have a stable financial system, a, a road system, security, then they're very susceptible to terrorism. And they're very susceptible to being a place where terrorism can flourish. And that was where I first gained the appreciation of how can we as, as medics, how can we as docs be part of that targeted and very specific plan to help bring stability in places where we go so that those areas can be stable and therefore, you know, perhaps in the future become partners versus becoming a place where, where terrorism can take hold. So that whole deployment was an incredible education for me. And I think the, the one other thing I learned there was from the Afghan uh, folks in particular and those partners was the importance of being the person that is worth doing business with versus just jumping into doing business. So I remember we went to one village and uh, we were going to talk about the, the immunization campaign for that area. 
And so I went in and I met with the village leaders and that was an adventure in and of itself because when they were uh, talking to me, they talked about, well, where's the man in charge? And it so happened that I was the man in charge and uh, it went back and forth between the interpreters for a few minutes, but then it came down to, you know what, for that situation, it didn't really matter the, the gender as much as it mattered to, okay, where are the resources, who can make decisions, you know, and, and who will listen to what's needed. So that was a learning opportunity. But, but then when we sat down, I wanted to start talking business and they actually backed me up a few times and they said, no, let's have some tea, let's have chai, let's sit down and, and break bread together. And afterwards, I, I commented to, to the, the local provider that was with me and they said, you know, they, they really don't want to talk business with you until they know you're someone that they want to do business with. And I think there's a lot that we in the U.S. could, could learn from that practice. Well, those two stories were great and, and really do highlight what it is that we do in military medicine, take care of combat wounded soldiers and allies. You served as the director of residency training for Fort Bragg, North Carolina Family Medicine Program, which is home to the 82nd Airborne, as well as special operations community soldiers and their families. How is residency training unique when serving these populations? And what was it like overseeing residency training at a large medical center? Residency training at Fort Bragg certainly has a unique flavor, and especially at that time. So remembering that I had trained at Madigan Army Medical Center, which is a big academic medical center, and uh, during that time, it was pre-9-11. Well, after my deployment to Afghanistan, I had served with a lot of the soldiers from Fort Bragg, uh, special operations. And so when I got back to the States and the consultant asked me where I wanted to go, I said, I want to go to Fort Bragg. And again, remembering this is 2003. And he said, are you, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I really do, because that's where um, the soldiers are, and, and I want to go there. And it seemed like a great combination of being able to train docs from the very beginning on what it means to be a soldier physician. So at the time, uh, with the family medicine residency, we had 36 residents, and we were the only residency there. So that meant as a family doc, that is your best situation because your residents are the first assist for the surgeries. They are right there on the OB deck. They are right there in the orthopedic clinic. I mean, you really get that hands-on experience that is going to allow you to get the most experience for when you are in that austere location. The other piece is you gain an appreciation for the people that we actually exist to care for and their families. And so those families that spend uh, significant time back at the post while the soldiers are deployed, you get to care for them and you get to know what their needs are and you get to help support the force in that way. And then you also have a chance to put in perspective what your role is. I remember the first day of residency training when people would come and they had just graduated from med school and they were really excited because now you're a doctor and that's a really big deal and got to do the orientation and say to them, you know, it's a really big deal. You graduated from med school, you're a doctor. Now let's put that aside and talk about what you're really here to do and who you're here to serve. And Fort Bragg just provided such a reminder of our why and um, the humbling role it is to answer 
the commitment of the Army to be that medical support that is one step behind or even shoulder to shoulder with the soldier on the battlefield. And once you get comfortable being uncomfortable, if you will, once you get comfortable being in that situation where your support instead of the big deal, it's so rewarding. And it was really neat to watch the light go on for those residents. And in fact, just this past weekend, I was back down at Fort Bragg and some of my residents have since uh, gone, deployed, gone back, and, and they're still there and they're still just loving doing what they do, taking care of soldiers, delivering that full spectrum of health care in support of the force. So you had a chance after that to go back to Southwest Asia, and you deployed to this time to Tikrit, Iraq, with the 4th Infantry Division. Tell us about your role there and your most memorable experience from that deployment. Yeah, that, that deployment was so different from Afghanistan. So Afghanistan literally on the the ground, um, first with soldiers and then with civil affairs, literally sometimes, you know, on horseback or in the Toyota Hiluxes where the rubber met the road. With 4th Infantry Division, I was there as the division surgeon. And I took a little bit of a circuitous route. I had never been a battalion surgeon. I had never been a brigade surgeon, not because I uh, hadn't desired it, but frankly, because of the number one problem I have found being an army doctor is that there are too many good jobs for the number of years that we have available to serve. So you have to make choices. So I had been in the academic realm for a bit and, but then still wanted that chance to do the operational piece. So I jumped into being a division surgeon. And one thing that I learned in that, the very first day I sat down with the other division staff, the chief of staff was there and he looked around the table at us and I think things might not have been going great. And he said to us, and may have used more colorful language, he said, darn it, you all have been around this table for 12 years, so you know what needs to happen and you need to figure it out. And I looked around the table and I realized it was my very first day there. And so I looked up and tried to make eye contact and find another friendly face. Again, remember, I'm the only doc there. And I did make eye contact with the G1 or the person who led personnel. And she was the only other female on the staff. So I knew we were probably going to be either best of friends or worst of enemies. Luckily, it was the the former. And so went and introduced myself to her. And I said, hey, you know, this is who I am. I am confident that I can do what you all need for medicine, but I don't know a thing about how this division operates. So would you be willing to help teach me? And uh, so that happened before the deployment. And to a number, each of those staff I went to was willing to spend a little time and, and get me up to speed. And, and in turn, I made sure they had all the care they needed. And and it ended up being a fantastic learning experience and reinforced that need to get out of your comfort zone if you're going to have uh, have the opportunity to bring as much value as possible. But then we deployed and we got to Iraq. And my main job there was being the, the oversight for the medical as we came out of northern Iraq. So our division was the, the last division in northern Iraq during Operation New Dawn. And so the job was to get about 10 years of medical equipment and stuff out while still making sure that those soldiers that were furthest forward had all the medical care they needed. And this is where I learned the importance of, again, trusting the other people on your team and knowing that even if you are responsible for oversight, it doesn't mean that you have all the answers. And oftentimes the best thing you can do is be quiet and listen to the subject matter experts on your team as they give the recommendation. So we figured out something called called Air Raws, which is where the, the Aravacs were 
in the sky to make sure that we had far forward coverage and could get people out if they were injured without having the surgeons, the last ones on the front lines. And so that was a a really phenomenal experience as far as watching that happen and making sure that the soldiers were taken care of, that we uh, respected the golden hour, which was the the rule at the, the time. And, and that we also uh, didn't have the medical folks being the last ones that were uh, shutting off the lights and, and closing the doors as we transitioned out of that theater. One of your interests is in women's health. Tell us about the importance of women's health in the Army and how does military medicine work to meet the unique medical needs of women? I think women's, women's health is a topic that near and dear to my heart and and also an important one for Army medicine. Not only are 17% of of the Army made up of women, so there's the the need to make sure we're providing that care to the whole force if we want to keep a, a diverse force. And I would argue that we benefit from having a diverse force. And if we ever find things that are, are limiting that, that we need to make sure we address it. So to make sure that we are addressing the unique needs of women's health is a key component to ensuring that we are supporting a diverse force. Additionally, the Chief of Staff of the Army's People First Strategy talks about caring for the whole family. And this was something that I saw when when I was deployed, uh, when I was stationed at Fort Bragg, is that the importance of making sure that the family members are getting care as that enables soldiers to be able to focus on their mission downrange. So for those families that are behind while the soldiers are deployed forward, or even while the soldiers are training, if the soldiers know that they are getting the best care possible, then they can focus on their mission downrange and and not be distracted wondering if there's adequate access to care or adequate talent. And then finally, back to that whole idea of partnering with, with nations downrange is that we know that in countries where women and children are cared for, um, you are much more likely to have stability. And a lot of that reason is because the women are raising the children and the children are the future of the nation. That was one of the, the neat things when I was in Afghanistan, like I said, being on the front lines and talking with the women there and sharing with them you know, you all are pivotal to the future of your country because as you care for these children, as they develop, as they're well-nourished, as they're educated, so goes the future of your country. So as much as we maintain that ability to have women's health care as part of our skill set and part of our armamentarium, it helps to care for women in uniform. It helps us to care for the families of our own. And it also gives us an additional tool as we look forward to conducting medical diplomacy and supporting the force across the broad range. So how have you been able to manage being a military physician, residency instructor, senior military medical leader, while also being a wife and mom to five kids? And what advice would you give to other young officers interested in balancing career with raising a family? (laughs) Well, uh, how I do it is with a lot of help. And, and a lot of uh, appreciating the fact that I, I don't have to do it all and I don't have the capability to do it all and realizing that um, life does not have to be perfect to be wonderful. Uh, that's one of the magnets on our fridge that I, I refer to frequently. So as far as the five kids, I give a ton of credit to my husband, Joe, 
who make sure that kind of like I was saying about uh, the soldiers not having to worry about what's going on at home because they know it's all straight. Uh, Joe does a fantastic job with that. And he has the toughest job uh, because while we have five kids and that's interesting, probably even the more interesting part is that our oldest is 23 and our youngest just turned five. And uh, so Joe has the adventure of uh, of keeping the the five-year-old um, in track and engaged, and uh, he keeps us young, that's for sure. But um, I think one of the, the areas that I found incredibly freeing was when General Horho, our for, former Surgeon General, said to me, she said, I don't use the term balance, I use the term trade-offs. And so giving yourself permission to acknowledge those trade-offs. So I do fill those roles you described. I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm a, a, a doctor, a, an officer. And you know what? There are days that I do those things well, but rarely do I do them all well on the same day. And I make trade-offs. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, this, this past year, our son number two, also named Keegan, had taken a gap year from college and he decided he was going to enlist in the Army. And you know what? There are people who would enlist him. Um, the, the MEPS has those. But a friend of mine said, you know what? It would mean a lot to Keegan if you did his enlistment. And uh, I was a young general officer at the time. And, and I, I took on that challenge. And I said, OK, I'm going to do this. And this was still during COVID. So, you know, we had to get permissions. But my calendar that day as a young general officer already had a whole bunch of stuff on it. And that trade-off, that day I, I didn't do all the officer things, but I did something for Keegan that I know he and I will remember. And at the encouragement of friends to swear him in and, and to enlist him in the Army. So to me, the, the biggest thing is to acknowledge those trade-offs and to be kind to yourself and to accept help from others, you know, farm out what you can and make those choices to be there for those once in a lifetime events. And oftentimes when, when I'm talking about that, that balance and that resilience and how do you take care of yourself, because I do have five kids, there's five things that I, I refer back to and I found incredibly useful in helping me keep that. One is, you know, PT five days a week. I mentioned to you that when I first came in the army, I couldn't do one push up. And I had a hard time making weight. The Army has trained me over the years. And, and also that, that physical fitness ties into uh, me being able to, to have a clear mind and, and mentally able to engage with the day. Uh, number two, I make a list of five things at the beginning of the day. I have still have the old-fashioned sticky pad. It's a little more reliable than, than high-tech stuff. And I, uh, I list out what I'd like to get done because otherwise the day can take over and I can end up being in meetings all day and answering emails all day. And, and I, I don't know what I've actually accomplished, but if I make a list, I, I do. Number three, and my husband taught me this one, is around noon every day, take five minutes and reconnect with somebody outside of work. And this can either be with you know a phone call or... Even memes, since I have a number of teenage kids, we sometimes get some very funny meme strings going back and forth. Or you can even get crazy and, you know, write a note and pop a note in the mail to someone. But, but that connection with something outside of work keeps me grounded on not letting my work become my identity. And then around five o'clock or whatever time your normal day could start coming to a close, look at your desk and say, what must happen tonight? Or what? Can I close up 
and then continue on tomorrow because rarely are you going to get everything done in that day. There's always something else. But in order to maintain some, some foundation and balance, you do need to connect with your work and connect with your home. And then um, finally, having what I would call a board of directors, five people who you know, no matter either how great a day or how tough a day you're having, no matter what time zone they're in, you can call them and they would be that shoulder to either cry on or laugh with, the voice of reason and, and somebody who would give you that loving, supportive, sometimes tough love advice that you need to uh, to keep the foundation. So I have found all those things to be incredibly helpful and to help me maintain joy in what I do rather than getting overwhelmed by it. So there's been some recent reports in the press and scientific literature about concerns of limited clinical opportunities to maintain required bountiful skills at military healthcare facilities. And that includes some of the facilities within the Atlantic region where you're the commanding general. What's the military doing to address those concerns? In these areas, we really need to be willing to embrace transformation. And transformation by definition means that what you have in the end does not look like what you had in the beginning. And so as we have this commitment to skills, we need to be willing to look at partnerships. So I can tell you that some of our MTFs have uh, fantastic local partnerships with their local trauma centers. And just to step back for a moment, our medical force needs a whole range of skills. And I think you don't hear primary care talked about as much because frankly, we have a lot of primary care exposure in our day-to-day work. But you hear about the, the surgical skill maintenance and really looking at maintaining surgical skills for the whole team. So we look at partnerships with our local civilian organizations. The MedCom itself actually has some formalized programs with uh, national trauma centers where they've been assigning personnel and they've been looking at how do we make sure we take care of the whole team in that. So not only the surgeons, the anesthesia providers, the medics, the nurses, so that has been part of it. We are partnering with DHA and looking at which of our facilities should be trauma centers. Um, having come from Tripler, that was one of the initiatives we took there. And, and the big plus of that is you, no kidding, really do get from the moment the patient comes into your emergency department all the way through their care, even through rehabilitation. The entire team gets that experience. But the, the downside is you have to make sure that there's actually the volume and the acuity. You don't want to build something just to have a label. You actually want that hands-on. And then there's the synthetic training, which has gotten so much better over the years. So we look at how do we integrate the synthetic training so that in our simulation centers, we are practicing and then we've got that agility so that when we actually take care of the patients, we're performing and performing at the highest level. So we heard you earlier tell about your son, Keegan, and how he had enlisted in the Army. You have the fortune of being both a mother and a general officer. What advice would you give to a college student right now who was interested in attending medical school and was considering military medicine? I would tell them to look at what are their reasons for wanting to go into medicine, because I can't think of anything more rewarding, but it's not always easy. 
And so I, I tell all of my children this. I have a, a daughter who's looking at uh, attending West Point right now. And I, I tell her while I would be excited if she went there, it's got to be because it's where her passion lies. So I would tell somebody who's considering a field in military medicine to look at where do they get their joy? Where's their passion come from? Do they have a passion for serving others? Do they have a lifelong curiosity? Because the army gives you so many chances to learn about life that you didn't even know existed before and to have a broad range of experiences. And for us in the medical field, that's our, our ticket. That's how we get into that world that so many people don't have a chance to see. And, and that's how we have a, a chance to positively impact the course of the future of, of our nation. And I say that quite seriously. I can't think of another field where on the individual level, you can somehow touch the policies and procedures that could help to make our nation more secure. I would tell them, honestly, it involves sacrifice. It involves some late nights. You have to pass the 2 a.m. test. If you're still up at 2 a.m. working on whatever it takes to get there, is it still going to be worth it to you? And that they would have the opportunity to join a, a family, and you all know this, a family of like-minded individuals who, while we go through difficulty, in the end, you can look to your left and your right, and you can be grateful for and proud of the people you serve with. So you completed an additional fellowship training focused on faculty development. How is graduate medical education important to military medicine? And why should active duty healthcare professionals serve as clinical faculty versus outsourcing this training to the civilian community? Yeah, well, graduate medical education is, is certainly an area near and dear um, to my heart. And I believe that based on where we are in our nation right now with uh, graduate medical education, there are more students graduating medical school than there are residency training positions for them to go into. And so for the military, graduate medical education is a key pathway to ensuring we have the medical force that we need. So the, uh, the president of the American College of Graduate Medical Education has even weighed in on this and talked about the criticality of the military medical graduate medical education system in our nation because of all of the contributions that those of us who have served in uniform and whether you get out after 10 years or five years, or 25 years, we continue to serve in our medical community and our nation. So I think that the contributions of military medical education are significant and continue well beyond the time in the military because of the fact that leadership and service is woven into everything that we do. As far as why do we need uniformed members to continue as part of our faculty, that's a question we really need to ask ourselves as part of transformation. So my personal opinion is that we do need a segment of uniform members, although it may not be all. And this, I take this away from the time when I was a residency director at Fort Bragg, and probably about half of our faculty were military and the other half were civilian. And that brought that balance of the experience of the uniform providers in developing the next generation of military medical providers, but also the stability of the civilians. And the civilians usually had some connection to military medicine, whether they had served themselves before 
whether they had family members who had served or whether they actually were married to, to a soldier at the time. So I believe that it really comes down to that supply, that human resource and that talent, um, that if we in the Army want to make sure we have what we need to care for the soldiers downrange and to ensure a ready medical force and a medically ready force, at this point, we need to have some mechanism to continue to generate that force so we can make good on that commitment. So we'd like to ask this particular question to uh, our guests, and that is, especially guests with, uh, you know, a big family such as you, if your great, great grandchildren 100 years from now were to unearth this podcast somehow, what would you want them to hear? I would want them to know that the time that I spent away from our family helped to contribute to a more stable and more opportunities for families around the world. When I first deployed to Afghanistan, I'm sure a very well-meaning person came up to me and asked me what kind of mother was I that I would leave my children to go to war. Again, remember this was in 2003 and so it was still pretty fresh in Afghanistan. And I said, well, I go because I'm hoping that if I go there, it will keep the war from coming here to my children and your children. And that would be what I would want my family to know, that my actions would in some small part have contributed to them being able to live in our country and experience the freedoms that we experience and for them to have the opportunities to contribute in their own way towards making it better for all of us. We've really enjoyed the privilege to speak with Brigadier General Mary Kruger on Wardocs. Mary, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and insights, and thanks for your service. Yeah, thanks, Doug. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.